everybody suffers from downtime every now and then. And there was recently a major DDoS attack. And with that, we got some great fodder. Uh, Air Azure, what is it? Airsazurethrows.tumblr.com. Uh, Airsazurethrows.tumblr.com. Of course it's a Tumblr. Is a collection of... Azure Airs that are, are really great. And, you know, recently I've been struggling where I have services where part of them is broken. And I've realized it's because they depend on all these different various microservices that keep going offline. I'm looking at you, Telegram bots. Uh, this is a great Tumblr if you want to smile. Airs, Azure Throws, <laughs> is hilarious. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 168, recorded on October 25th, 2016. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that has a real soft spot for open hardware. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. We'll be getting into a little open hardware purchase that I just made. I'm very excited. We'll talk about that a little bit in the show. But as is our traditional recipe these days for an Unplugged show, we'll be going through some great community updates. We're going to start with one that I'm personally super excited about. Am I not just dancing right now? Oh, you are dancing off the wall. I was totally just dancing on the intro because I'm so excited about this. Then you've probably heard about Dirty Cow by now, but did you know it's going after your Samsungs and your Motorola's and your HD? Yeah, your Android phones. It's everywhere. It's a train wreck. And we'll give you a little more specifics about Dirty Cow, and if you really need to worry if you're an up-to-date Linux user, then we'll get into archival of some of our long-term memories digitally. We'll get an update from Popey and Wimpy about their trip to a recent event. That's right. And then... We'll get into that hardware surprise. Oh, man, this is something I have been waiting for for two years. Well, yeah, waiting for this product for about two years. We have had people that have created this product on two different Jupiter Broadcasting shows, and I'm going to play an interview for you today in today's episode of Unplugged. Then I'll unveil what it is that I got. I am so excited. I'm going to have it right here in the studio. Oh, I know. I know. It actually relates to something we were just talking about in the post-show last week. Oh, no way. It all ties together. It all ties together. But before we can get into any of that, Wes, there's a protocol that must be followed, a duty that must be followed through on, and that's bringing in the most important part of the show, our virtual luck. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. 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 Those wonderful people. That's a that's that's a that is a virtual lug right there. Yes. Okay. Now tell me you can't be a little excited about this. I am super excited about this. Freablo. Free Oblo, a work in progress, free open source replacement for the Diablo One engine. Simply import your Diablo assets and enjoy the same old game with better performance, modern resolutions, and first-class support for mods. Is that Linux I see on the top right of your screen? Yeah, it is, buddy. Yeah, no it is. way. Yeah, yeah. So they're uh, they love they love the original Diablo. In fact, they love it so much they say they're going to spend their precious time developing a free and open-source solution for those that want to play it on a modern computer. I think I'm down with that. Yeah, and they say it's legal. They won't distribute any of the copyrighted game right. assets. You have to have a copy of those assets to play, but everything else around it, they're gonna they're gonna open source. See, that's great. That's a that seems like a pretty clever way to do it. Yeah, and they're working on multiplayer right now. So, I am so excited. Man, I had not seen. This. Did you find this? How did I find out about yeah. this? Good job, Wes. How did you find out about this? Where'd you see this? You know, I actually don't know, but I had it sticking in one of my open tabs. I was like, okay, this deserves to be in the show because yeah. I, I had left it for myself, obviously, because I wanted to play it. Yeah, I, this when I saw that come across the link list, I was like, yeah, 
Yeah, we are freaking talking about that. What I, better way to exercise your uh, left mouse button, right? That's true. That's true. All right. Well, we did it last week, and the tradition continues this week. We're going to open up the show with a little bit of breaking news here. This is CNN Breaking News. So you've probably heard to death by now about the uh, the Dirty Cow vulnerability in Linux, the most serious Linux vulnerability Quote. ever. Ours said that. A few others yeah, have they said did. that. Now it seems that Android phones are getting root, rooted by this vulnerability. Whoa. This feels like this is where this matters. Yeah, your router, your your fridge, your your IP camera. Okay. But that's still pretty niche to the you know main consumer. Yeah, so it looks like there's a new method for rooting Android devices that's believed to work reliably on every version of the mobile operating system and, of course, a wide array of the hardware. Individuals can use it to bypass limitations imposed by manufacturers or carriers, but can also use it to sneak apps in for malicious purposes. The technique comes courtesy of the Linux privilege escalation bug that we talked about uh, on Linux Action Show called Dirty Cow. And so some people are calling the vulnerability... um, or it goes back to kernels. The vulnerability goes back to kernels since 2007, which pretty much means every damn Android phone ever made. Right. Uh, and then several independent security researchers are doing proof of concepts right now. Ours interviewed two of them. Uh, David Manchouser uh, told ours that the proof of concept code that exploits Dirty Cal on Android gets devices close to root. And with a few additional lines of code, he can get persistent root access on all five of Android devices he's tested. A separate well, security researcher asked not to be identified said that several other people have developed separate uh, root exploits based on the Sturdy Cal exploit. They say we're using a rather unique route that we believe we can use elsewhere in the future. And because of that, they don't want to tell Google about it. Oh, of course. Right. Because they don't want Google shutting down the vulnerability. So they're, they're keeping it on their own. Um, this is bad, right? This is an example of why... Sure, you can get your uh, your Fedora machine updated. You can get your Ubuntu machine updated and your Archbox updated. But what are you uh, do about your Samsung phone? Joe Smith walking around with an S6 or an S5 or an S3 or a Motorola X or whatever. Yep. Especially on one of our big uh, big name carriers here. Oh! So you have to buy a new phone once there's a phone that is patched, I guess. Yeah. I, I, and, and I don't know. Anybody in the mobile room think we're worrying too much about this stuff? Because personally, I feel like I can't overemphasize this. I feel like I'm sitting here yelling down from the mountaintop. You're walking around with vulnerabilities in your pocket that could expose your personal data. A disaster is coming. And I do a think flood is coming. That's something you've been thinking about a lot personally, I think, in the yeah. last year or so. Um, Am I overreacting? Sometimes. With, with the personal data thing, I feel like Android does that pretty well by guess vaguely saying what an app will do with your data. Yeah, and they do have sandbox. And only once. And there is, I mean, and as ours does a good job of mentioning it, you know, like there are, there is that double-edged sword of, you know, some users will, will benefit. I have already linked this article to some of my friends who are on phones that they've wanted to root but can't. Mm. So there are benefits, but I yes, also do... I was thinking that too. I do also worry about that, like, I mean, realistically, I don't know what other people are going to do, but... Does it does it just further the bad bad press about the Linux kernel? Does it make other people less likely to build a similar platform using that kernel? It also makes me feel like all of those people, like the Black Phone, or everybody who's created these ultra secure Android phones. There's there's a dozen different models yes. right now. They're all bullshit because mm-hmm. they're all walking around with this kernel vulnerability. Yeah. The only phone that's legitimately safe is probably a Nexus that gets the patch soon, or a Pixel phone. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> Or one that's not Android. And speaking of this, I want to give you a little more details about Dirty Cow. Also, uh, quaintly known as CV 2016 5195. Rolls right off the tongue. 
Dirty Cow, which naturally has its own logo and webpage now, um, which is kind of actually a funny it's one. It's a sign of our times. It is, it is kind of a good one, they though. They do a very good job of yeah. it. Actually, <laughs> it's a race condition in the kernel's memory management subsystem. By timing things right, a local attacker can exploit the copy-on-write mechanism to turn a read-only mapping of a file into a writable mapping. And then with that, a file that should not be writ- write, you could write to, you could write to, which means change certain parameters, change like the permissions, change the ownership. Suddenly I'm in the pseudo-words. Yeah. It doesn't take much integrate – or I'm sorry, it doesn't really probably take much imagination to see how the ability to overwrite files could be used to escalate privilege in a number of ways. The known exploit depends on access to slash proc slash self slash mem, which is not universally available. Even some systems that don't provide it at all or access to it. But there are still ways to exploit the bug potentially. The exploit happily bypasses almost every hardening technique out there. Strong sandboxing with mechanisms like uh, seccomp might slow it down. But coming out that it's – but that's really probably – it's – but counting on that is probably not wise either. This is an article at LWN. The only real protection is to upgrade a kernel containing the fix. You have to upgrade with a kernel that has the fix. The workarounds aren't even all that reliable. So Dirty Cow is a real son of a bitch. And it's not the only one that's being exploited on Android right now. So there is also the Rowhammer vulnerability, which allows the attacker to bit flip over to root. Researchers have devised an attack that gains unfettered root access to a large number of Android phones, exploiting a relatively new type of bug that allows adversaries to manipulate data stored in the memory chips. This is actually, I believe, a vulnerability more at the CPU level yeah, than it a, is on the frickin' OS level. Yeah, the it's a hardware problem. Yeah, the breakthrough has the potential to make millions of Android phones vulnerable, at least until the security fix is available, to a new form of attack that seizes control of core parts of the operating system and neuters key security defenses. Neuterism. Equally important, it demonstrates that the new class of exploit, dubbed Rowhammer, can have a malicious and far-reaching effect on a much wider number of devices than previously known, including those that are on ARM. So this seems to be an issue so far tested on the Nexus 4, Nexus 5, and the G4 from LG, the Moto G models from 2013 and 2014, made by Motorola, the Galaxy S4, the S5 from Samsung, the One from OnePlus. However, not in all cases the, the results are consistent. Only 12 of the 15 Nexus Model 5s that were tested were successfully rooted, and only one of the two Galaxy S5s were compromised. So it's something to do with the chip, and the researchers that are testing this have made an app that you can sideload to test to see if your CPU is vulnerable so they can get a wider sample base. Holy crap! And this they did tell Google in July. Well, that's good. Yeah, they say the vulnerability – Google says the vulnerability is critical, which is their highest rating, and have awarded the researchers four grand. So the, they Google thinks they this is a legit it. issue. Yep. I like that. Until recently, we never even thought about hardware bugs, and software was never written to deal with them. And there is no quick software update to patch the problem and go back to business as usual. That's a shame. I, I do wonder, though, it's kind of making me think, uh, I feel like we don't see the same kind of press about, like, jailbreaking on the iOS side as we do about That's because getting, it's, getting a, it's a superior system. Ah. Really, I mean, come yeah. on, let's just admit it. I mean, yeah, you can have your fanboy position, but you're right. You don't. You don't have this problem on iOS. And if you do have this problem, they patch faster. And that's a freaking reality of the market right now. And maybe another vendor will hopefully do it better soon. But this is not, this is not what Google this is good at. This is kind of the perfect example of why, it, you know, you, they do have problems on iOS, but they, they, they patch them. And, you know, my hope is the Pixel fixes this particular gap. I really hope the Pixel fixes this in a way Agreed. that a lot of people have. Um, I just, you, you ordered one, right? Yep. 
Yeah, I, I see. I, I really hope, man, maybe you'll be our canary uh, because this is bad. And and to be honest, you know, the other thing that really pisses me off is that comment that well, until recently, we never considered hardware vulnerabilities and didn't design our operating system. Bullshit. What is data execution prevention? What? what come on, give me this. Come on. What really? Why did Apple desi- design the secure enclave so that it doesn't pass any information to the underlying operating system or the ARM chipset? There's a reason they designed it like right. that. Of course we know of hardware vulnerabilities. x86 is filled with them. And surely ARM is as well. So just to say, well, we... <laughs> well, especially we when... Uh, <laughs> it's like, it's like bullcrap. And even this one has been, you know, the Rowhammer's been around for a while now. What do you think, Swift? I honestly think that for most part, people can't afford the Pixel. So it's asking a lot to expect them to get it. They need this security for a cheaper phone. Yeah, I, I, def- I definitely true. Yeah, I definitely agree there. What do you think, uh, Mini Mac, about the Pixel? Yeah, I would hope that the Pixel gets more than three years of support because of just these kind of vulnerabilities. I don't pay him a thousand bucks for a phone only for three years and then have these bucks coming on me and I can change anything. This is probably the number one bit of feedback we got on last week's user air where we talked about the Pixel right. yep. and we talked about the update cycle and so many people wrote in and said, man, I, everybody in my extended friends and family that is not – oh, yeah. The te- we also covered this on TechSnap. We got a bunch of emails on TechSnap. So both shows, we got a lot of people writing and say, I might update my devices uh, more frequently or I can't update my devices more frequently. But you know who never updates their devices is all of my friends and family who aren't tech. Right, exactly. People that aren't into tech. To them, an update is just an annoyance. It might break. Things. They you know, update you just, their phone when it breaks. Yeah. Or you go into the store and they update it for you or whatever. Maybe when they all die off, that'll change. But that seems to be the way people operate right now. And so these have to be five-year devices. How do we teach the next generation that updates are good, that updates are something you should do? They sure like buying things. So yeah, right. Maybe they already got it. I think the other thing that really drives me crazy about all of this is I, I don't I don't accept the answer that it's not possible to update these devices for five years. That's – that's yeah, oh, tell that tell that to the banks that are running or just Red Hat in general. I mean, like they're backboarding. Yeah, tell like that, tell that to the servers that have been running a Red a Red Hat distro for seven or eight years. Tell that to the banks that have mainframes still getting support by IBM that are in there for thirty years. Yeah, but Chris, to be fair, the people who are getting updates from Red Hat are paying for them. You're, once you've bought, once you've gone through the retail experience and you've walked out with a phone, you give zero money to HTC or Samsung. It all goes to Google. I would and say that, but it's Google's Samsung. responsibility to do the updates, not HTC. There's also no option for me to pay anyone to do that if I wanted to. I guess I except for those maybe value. I don't. I don't see how about. this isn't just a technology problem. This seems like it actually. This doesn't. I guess here's what I mean: is to me, Popey, this doesn't seem like a technology problem at all. They technically could update the software for as long as they want. That's, I, th- I think, technologically possible. They simply don't have the will from a corporate standpoint. No, I, I'm not suggesting it's not, a te- uh, it's not a technical issue. It's a purely financial it's, it's, one. Nobody's, nobody's paying them to do it. And it's probably also easier for them to, you know, otherwise you have to it's do same, things separately back, and so they can roll the their features. Android 2 and, and uh, devices never getting updates to, yeah, you know, this has been the same for years and years and years that devices wouldn't get updates and it slowly got better. But it's always been the case that if you don't pay for someone to actually do the hardware enablement and do the backporting, then 
that I mean, you're not getting any revenue from those from those customers. They've walked out the door, right? You're getting revenue from people who are buying the Pixel phones or the next phone or the next phone. You're well, getting nothing from those well, people who walked out the door three years ago. Really, though. Why should, yeah, Google's totally. not making any money off of Android users besides the hardware sale. I'm not. I no, don't HTC agree. HTC and Samsung and all the others. Are. Well, that's their. So that's no their. To... That's that's their. Then they made a mistake shipping Android because that's that's a separate <laughs> argument. That's a that's right, a totally separate issue. The fact pretty, that they can't make money off of Android. Well, they've done pretty well off it. I'm not saying they're not making money off it. I'm saying they're making money off, they're making continual forward revenue off the new devices they're being sold. They're not making any money off the ones that have already been shipped out. You know, Toby, I, 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 I understand that they're not making money off of it. I think this is Google's responsibility. Just like Canonical can now, now live patch the running Ubuntu 16.04 kernels of servers all over the world. I don't see why Google couldn't live patch Android handsets. Why, the technology is there. It's it's a possibility. They just simply don't have the will or the corporate contracts or the bureaucratic structure to enable it. But yet they still have the nuts to sell these devices to consumers and literally put their personal lives at risk. It seems like a total disconnect to me. Right. And I and I agree with you. You know, I go to a store. If you if you went to a Verizon store and bought a device, my contract is with Verizon. I, that's who I I I made the retail purchase with. I understand. And right. if Google reached into my phone and flipped some bits on my phone, I would be pretty angry as Verizon that that Google are reaching into devices you know, and, and I, screwing this. I stuff. think that is an old argument. The carriers have to test the devices to make sure they work on the network, but yet there are hundreds of millions of iPhones receiving updates directly from Apple, and there are tens of millions of Android devices running CyanogenMod, and the right, carriers don't many, have any. How many? How many hardware? How many different hardware devices are there that Apple support? Like right now. Not that many. Look at how many different different devices there are that even one manufacturer, Samsung, has. Look at the range of devices that one manufacturer has. It's a completely different ballgame, Android devices, than Apple devices. That is true. Although I wonder if something like that could be fixed with like an SLA-type agreement between Google and Verizon. You know, if they do cause Verizon real problems, support calls increase by a certain amount on these supported phones with upgrades. You could have business arrangements that mm-hmm. might get around that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to give other people a chance to, to jump in and kind of push back a bit, too, because I know people have been taking me. Mosenrath, uh, you had a comment about shipping Android, about going with Android and not making any money. Go ahead. Yeah, just like a lot of people have been saying in there, such as Demerit and I believe Sweet Lou has also made the point. You're going to want to get to him on it as well. Um, Swift 110 also made a statement about that in you got to take a look at with Apple, as you see, you know, they have the enclosed garden set up. So they're making money off of the software, the hardware. You even thinking about it, they're making yeah, money off. Sure. Of the fact that you even use the word Apple. Yes. Somehow they were in your pocket already. But with, say, Samsung and HTC and all those other companies, they ship the product. You're buying the hardware from them. And as was stated, I believe it was by Popey a couple moments ago. That's it for them. Yeah. Well, the, the I, is that has... is that fair though? Because uh, Samsung's charging eight hundred dollars for a Note Seven. The Pixel, if you want a decent one, is seven hundred and fifty dollars. All the 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 six P is an expensive device. The, they they seem to be making a shit ton of money. The, the device hardware costs a, as much, if not more, in the case of Samsung, as an iPhone. Yeah, but as as a lot of people have stated, they make the money off of you once. That's it. That's the only cash they get from you. So, of course, they're going to try to get as much as possible in order to develop the next product. After I, that, I feel like they Android's, don't get any more money from you. Well, Samsung doesn't, who, who, who but may, I, Google. Google's yes, constantly but, monetizing the Android platform. That's why they yes, made it. Yes, but that's Google. 
that's monetizing the I platform. think that's who should be yeah, developing Google. the updates, too. But yes, Google but can't then develop you... the updates because there's no cooperation between them and the hardware manufacturers. Because the hardware manufacturers keep the source to themselves. That's why. Well, that's that's not always. That it actually works the other way. Google hold back Android updates from handset manufacturers as well. So Google hold back the latest version of Android so they can ship it on their own devices before it goes out to Samsung, HTC, even uh, yeah. tier one handset manufacturers don't get it as fast as Google get it themselves. This is why the Pixel is a thing now. I mean, yeah, the only right. one with that Google Smart Assistant, guys. <laughs> Sorry, it just I, cracks I, me up. Yeah. <laughs> the only way to get it um but i think it just tells you it just shows you that even google themselves recognize this is a core issue this disconnect between the carriers the handset manufacturers and google mm-hmm. it, it is just not, not a great ecosystem it is not right a tenu- yeah it is not a great ecosystem and everybody's paying patent fees to microsoft that gets in it like everybody's getting screwed yeah. at all ends and google's the only one making money samsung was but all right, so uh, does anybody else uh, – tag me again in the mumble room if anybody else wants to jump in before we move on. I think what I feel, what I feel is I understand, I understand how the business relationships are structured today. I understand how the source code dumps over the fence work from Google. I understand how monetization works of these devices and how they make their money and how the carriers want to add their layer on top of it. I get all of that, and I ask you, if you were an alien traveling from Mars and you arrived here and you looked at the situation, would you not think this is a dumb arrangement and say, well – the only thing that makes it this way is the artificial constructs that you hairless monkeys have set up <laughs> to do this. And if you just simply did it differently, it would be better. And it would literally be better for consumers. It would protect their privacy better. Uh, Mr. Swift, go ahead. The fact that they don't protect people's privacy is something that's going to become a larger issue over time. And I mean, if you just have an affordable way to protect people and show that you respect yeah. them, I think you'll make more over the long term versus trying to grab, grab, grab in the short term and charge all this money, but you're not providing them with the, the kind of comfort that they deserve. People right, like you might need that to change the market. Yeah, they're in their walled garden and they feel safe and secure there. If you can offer the same thing in the free software or with regards to uh, the phones, then you'll be in a much better spot. Yeah, and in fact, WW, that's kind of what you're thinking, right? I mean, geez, don't we hope that this is where free software could really help us? Yeah, because if you think about it, console game developers, to put it, to situate it kind of like that, when you see an update on that, it's paid for. The software development is paid for, and they pay for the actual update process to get it on that hardware and to be tested on that hardware and whatever licensing fees. And that kind of sucks. Where on PC, you can do whatever. So I'm really hoping that with Ubuntu phone, and I, I, maybe Popey or Whippy could answer this, that, or maybe Popey, that would it be open? So, like, if you're a developer, you can solve these issues, you can contribute to Ubuntu Phone OS and and make it better without having to wait and all that stuff. Because as I see it now, the only way this will be ever solved is having an open system where things could be more rapidly right. patched out. Right. And WW, done. when we were talking about, well, it doesn't make HTC any money to update these devices in the back of my head, I'm thinking, that's never been an issue for Linux development. No, you're right. It, it hasn't. We've developed and, you know, people have put in their... There's like, it's like, they're, they're like the community can solve this problem. And that would be Ubuntu Phone's advantage, right? Yeah, maybe. I, may I, I jump think, in here? Yeah. So what I know is that manufacturers like Qualcomm and others, they only build devices for 
the Android platform. So the device is not open. They ship their own drivers. So you can't just build a Linux infrastructure and put Ubuntu phone on it. That's why Ubuntu phone and Sailfish is based on Android because all these phones only run Android. So it's not as easy as WW thinks. Okay, fair point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have noticed that. And that is a, that is probably a, a fair with, point. With the um, Linux development point you just made, the difference with Linux is the people who are doing these patches are working for companies that want the code because it helps them. With Android, it's just being done by the companies to help support the device and they're not getting money after that. Mm-hmm. So I guess we need Google with its deep pockets to step up and incentivize these carriers to, or, or when hardware manufacturers to to consent to updates. Or um, as a market, the Pixel phone needs to be successful enough right. that it forces the market to react. And that might be what happens. Or we just keep having these horrible problems yeah. and enough that the platform is at risk. Yeah, and like Sweet Lou points out too, like not everybody can afford these latest and greatest phones, which also puts them at security risk. I want to address that in just a second. But before I forget, I wanted to I wanted to mention that I, I got uh, a note <clears throat> from the developer of the tool we talked about last week called the Magic Device Tool. Oh, really? That allows you to install uh, Ubuntu or Cyanogen or Phoenix OS or Android on your device. And I made the mistake because I think I, I misread this uh, – yeah, I misread this article. Uh, he actually does support the Google Apps. He's like, hey, you, you, thanks for the coverage, but by the way, we do support the Google Apps. Hey, even better. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. That's great. For, yeah, thank I, you for writing us to tell us. Yeah, mean, it was really nice. And so what a cool tool. And it's called, again, it's called the Magic Device Tool, and it allows you to deploy the latest Ubuntu touch release, Cyanogen mod with or without the Google Apps, and the factory Android app image, like a backup, including Phoenix OS on the BQ line of devices, pretty much all of them that matter, including the tablets, the Nexus 5, the Nexus 7, 2013. Hey. Yeah, which is a lot of us have that one with nothing to do with it. Also, the 2012 <laughs> Nexus 7, Samsung Nexus 10, which is a great tablet, and uh, the OnePlus One and the Fairphone 2 are all supported by the Magic Device Tool. So it's also just a nice way to create backups to restore your device. And it's nice that Ubuntu Touch is a is a top-supported option. So basically, you know, I, I bring this up because if if this is something that you've been chewing on, because it's, it's something I've been thinking about, like Wes mentioned, for a while, I, I kind of feel like this is at least um, uh, my boat is now on the beachhead and I have options. And once the 6P is added to that list, if it ever is, I, that'll be the, Boom, the day. Done. The day, yeah. Yep. I really – I'm – I'm really nice, hoping I could... That'd be a great device for it. Too. Oh, my God. If I could ever, ever run Ubuntu Touch on the 6P, I would be so happy. Because, yep. I, I mean, I am willing maybe one day to just get, a, a like, an MX Pro-type device. Sure. Oh, man, I would love it on the 6P. Because I don't mind the 6P hardware. It's a little big, a little heavy, but... But otherwise, gr- nice. Yeah. A great screen, great battery, and if you hold it real still, it takes a good picture. Mm-hmm. So that's that. that may be something that happens, and... The Nexus devices you can pick up for super cheap too if you want to play with Ubuntu Touch. So, yeah. you know there is another there is another component that uh, is 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 sort of something we have to attack from both ends, and that's the carrier side of this because they're they're a bunch of bastards in this entire thing too. So let's take a moment and mention our sponsor, which is a carrier that does this differently and does it right. Go to linux.ting.com. They don't get in the way of your updates. They don't have like a Ting experience that they have to develop and Im- integrate into the image. They don't. They don't put their bloatware on their apps because they don't have any bloatware. They don't like prevent you from updating over the wireless if you want. Like this, just simple wireless. You pay for what you use: minutes, messages, and megabytes. You pay for each 
for what you use. So if you don't text a lot, you don't pay for any texting. If you don't call a lot, you don't pay for any calls. If you don't use a lot of data, you don't pay for data. When you use it, you do pay, and it all averages out. You go to linux.ting.com to get $25 off your first device or $25 in service credit if you bring a device, which will pay for more than your first month, likely, if you average it out. This is something that's really nice because there's no contracts. There's no early termination fee. The devices are unlocked. They're not locked to Ting. You can move them around if you want, which makes it really nice to bring devices to. When you do need help, you just talk to a person, not a phone tree. But a person. You don't have to press zero like seven times. You don't hit mash it, ma'am, ma'am, yeah. <laughs> and they have CDMA and GSM, which uh, I know outside the U.S. that's not very common to use CDMA. But in the States with at least – We just a, love it. Well, especially on the West where you have – we have the Rockies. There's a ton of trees. CDMA has some serious advantages. Um, and, you know, GSM has been absolutely rock solid for me as well. So it's really nice to have both options. So you can get a little bit of a taste of it by going to linux.ting.com. And then speaking, uh, addressing Sweet Lou's point, speaking of like flagship-type devices that aren't super expensive, yesterday Ting just put up a blog post about five inexpensive smartphones with flagship performance. This is brilliant. So you can go get an unlocked phone with great performance, with no contract, $6 for the line, and you pay for what you use. And you can read the blog by going to linux.ting.com and then click on their blog link. I think this is kind of – it's just to sort of end bookend our conversation. This is a huge part of that entire formula. Yes, it is. Yeah, I really, if, if I could give you – if you could afford it and I could give you one recommendation about how to be secure with your mobile device, get a device from the Play Store and put it on the Ting network. It's expensive, but you're right. Like, that's probably the best option. You can go this route, too, you know, and if these devices are getting updated by their manufacturers, Ting will not inter- interfere with that. And so go read the devices they've listed here because the prices are, like, under 300 bucks, uh, except for the OnePlus 3. But, you know, or it, you know, there's really some serious options like the Huawei. The Huawei, the Huawei, is that how you say it? Huawei. Huawei. The Honor 5X, 199 The 5X. The 5X is still a great phone. I mean, it oh, would be yeah. a big upgrade for what Wes has got Yes, right it would. <laughs> In fact, you know what I love about Ting? This is from their blog right here. Here at Ting, we don't want to pressure you to buy a phone from the Ting shop. There's lots of special deals online, and we recommend that you take a look around. Just by waiting a few months and doing a bit of online research, you can get all the smartphone you need at a much smarter price. That is that is so plainly written, and it is it is so refreshing to hear that from a mobile phone they're, carrier. They're not trying to create a giant vertical monopoly. They just, they just want you to use their service because yeah. it's yep. good. They like they give you the couple of tips you need to go do a little searching. They link you to the Ting compatibility checker to make it even easier. Uh, they say over eighty percent of the phones made in the last few years are compatible with Ting. <laughs> so, wow! There you go. I think this is such a refreshing take on this. So get started by going to linux.ting.com. That gives you the discount, but also lets them know you heard about it right here on the Unplugged program. And right there in the middle. What would you save? Just experiment with that. It's fun. And consider, like, if you made a couple of changes, say you marked your music to uh, play offline, and you download your podcast over Wi-Fi, how much data would you use when you're commuting if you did that? And if you switched to Ting and you made those two adjustments, how much could you save? Check it out. Go to linux.ting.com. And a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So, Wes, there was this post about the... uh, Z or uh, XZ, is that how you say it? The yeah, XZ, XZ. The Z is uh, the XZ form. It's which only is, two letters. seems like we could say them. Which I know, but I don't know if it's Z or XZ. You know, I actually don't know. I feel like I always say XZ, but I'm probably wrong. Yeah, well, it doesn't really matter because they there's a post 
over at nonganu.org that says <laughs> so we we can't just let that go by, right? It's nonganu.org. Non-GNU.org. Uh, I've never installed GNU slash Linux. They say that the uh, XZ format is inadequate for long-term archiving. I think this entire post is bullshit, but I was kind of curious what you thought about it because you were the one that found this link. And then I wanted to kind of roll this into a, a, a slightly larger conversation with our mumble room about what they do for their long-term data archival needs. Because uh, – and I know, I know a couple of them in there are parents – Couple of them in there probably have keepsakes that they want to they want to have forever videos things the, like that. The idea of like you know, before I feel like a lot of people kind of discovered right. You had like pictures that you found in your garage or your parents' attic or something. You're like, oh, I have these from when I was a kid. But if it's on a hard drive, something like that is not the same in the digital age. God, that is such a good analogy. So uh, I have photo albums from my childhood that my mom gave me. It's like here, and these are yours to hang on to now. And, you know, once every 15 years or whatever, I've opened them up and I've gone like, holy crap, remember when we had chickens? Remember when we cut a hole in the side of the house and put a window in? That's so neat. I look through it and I'm like, this is really great. And maybe one day my kids, like I've gone through my dad's photo album and I found that to be fascinating. Wow, look at my dad as a kid. He looks like a kid. Totally. My dad's those are good memories, right? Yeah. You get to experience that. There's nothing like that. There's no like book my kids are going to go grab of them because it's all on a hard drive. And, or it's in some cloud account they don't have access to. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is one of the reasons I, I, I sacrifice every, every sacred freedom and privacy aspect I have by uploading all my photos to Google Photo. Because I'm just desperate to have some sort of long-term archival so that way when my kids are 15, I can look at them when they were four and five and, and remember what that was like. I don't want to not have that. So I keep trying to think, like, well, how can I do this where I control the data, I have a good archival system, and it is, it is. I guess I want the digital equivalent of a photo album and or, or, or other things like it. And I'm kind of curious what your thoughts were before we get to that. Yes. What are your thoughts about this particular article about how the uh, XZ format's a bastard and shouldn't be used because of checksums? Well, okay. One, I think the the Savannah, the non GNU website, they support free software. I don't, I don't know their their long history, but uh, I know they support free software, but they're and not. And the value of this is negative. With the Free Software Foundation, which, as we've discussed on the show, you know, you can love them or hate them, but they definitely have an ideology. Zombies don't run Linux. Exactly. Uh, so this is fair disclosure. This is written by the author of the LZIP tool, which is kind of a competing tool to XZ. They both use the LZMA uh, compression algorithm, which let's see, it's a that's a fun one. What is it? Uh, Oh, LZA, Lempel yeah, yeah. Ziv Markov chain algorithm. LZA is great because it's not the best compression ever, but it's great speed, works great on a file system level. I've used it in combination with ButterFS in the past. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so this XE also implements that. That's what it uses to compress files inside, but it also in- implements its own container format. Uh, and so this blog post, I, there are some things where I think that for the majority of use cases, it doesn't really matter. Um, one big thing I think that did kind of ring true is they talk about how it doesn't support garbage data after the end of the file, um, that sort of thing where I think like if you were going to do things with tape-style backups, that sort of stuff, there may be some validity. I think there are also some mm, things that like generally ring true and are good design principles here about, you know, like you want to keep things simple, you can over-engineer things. There there are some plausible arguments here about how XZ may be over-engineered, especially for like the most common use cases. Here's why I feel like the argument that using XZ for backup and archival is is bad – the reason why it's bogus, he, he he hangs his hat on things like checksums and whatnot not being built in. But there are so many other tools that if you yes. just use the Unix philosophy, you know, if you use like SHA-256-SUM, 
and par two, or you know, there's ways you can you can do this uh, and supplement the deficiencies of XZ that are just built-in tool chains on the Linux system. Right. I think that's a, 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 exactly. Um, but I wonder, does anybody in the mumble room? So, uh, in a go-go, Mr. Go-Go, you you just made a great point. You said, um, in fact, speaking of you, I, I, your 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 thing is next. But Mr. Go-Go, uh, you had a, a I forget what it was, but you had an you combine TarSnap with something else, and that this is your solution. Well, I don't use it, but yeah, I guess thought would be an interesting way of doing it using a free NAS to do ZFS stuff, and then doing putting some of the stuff you want to keep onto TarSnap. And then also having a photo album just in case any of those two fail. But that's not this. Yeah, that is a great way to protect the data. But I don't feel like it. It it doesn't have that accessibility that I'm looking for. That that a generation from now, when I'm not there to tell them how to get access to it, I'm not there to provide them the login. But I want them that, to have access to it. That's what the physical photo album for. Print them out, Mosenrath. Yeah. What do you think? Is there is there is there a digital way to do this with like discs? Probably not. Like uh, we've been discussing it in the chat room here in terms of like how long things will last and all that. But as you can see by my last comment and what other people have said, it's like I dare you to try to use your free NAS when there's a power outage. Go ahead. Let's see you do it. You can't. And therefore, that physical media, even though it is going to fade, no matter what it is that you do is still the best one. Like, I got a pile of pictures and a couple of photo albums. I'm looking at them right now, right? I don't have those in any kind of digitized format. I had them at one point in time, scanned them all, lost them all because I formatted the wrong disk. Oh, wait a second. You could do that just about anywhere, any place, huh. anytime, couldn't you? Yeah. Because there's no such thing as a setup, yeah. as far as I know, yeah. that if you can access it to put stuff in, that you cannot access it and wipe things out. Right, and something that you know they're going to have access to generations later. I kind of I kind of like TechMav's solution. He's created a dead man switch. So maybe once you stop punching the button every few years, it automatically delivers the login credentials and a URL to your kids. Yeah, that would be pretty neat. Uh, you know what? Let's punt this to the listeners that are listening after the fact. Uh, and let us know. A comment wherever you're catching this or wherever you prefer to comment or email and or, or tweet. And let me know what you would do for this. And I obviously want it to be Linux-based. Right. I so. mean, open source, right? I mean, you need things that really you can ha- – if you need to do something 20 years, 100 years from now that you can. Really? Seriously? Yeah, that's a, that's a key thing. Right, because that way you could send the code along with the files. So, uh, uh, Mr. Gogo, was it in the post-show last week that I was talking about how I'd love to have analog meters to represent my CPU usage? I think it was in the pre-show. Pre-show, okay. So uh, after after talking about it on the Unplugged program, uh, <laughs> Mr. Inagogo uh, submitted this to the subreddit, a video where he's connected a VU, or I think it's a voltage meter, I think, connected over USB to his laptop. And you can see he's got GNOME system monitor running here, and the CPU load that's in GNOME system monitor is translated to this voltmeter's analog dial. Have I described this correctly so far? Kind of. Okay. The um, the GNOME system monitor was just me demonstrating that it's quite accurate to where it's pointing. Sure. But there, there's a Arduino sitting between the laptop and the voltmeter, which <laughs> is having data sent from the okay. laptop by a Python script, which then turns that into a 
PWM signal that changes where the needle is. <laughs> WW says it needs more Nixie tubes. This is pretty yes. awesome, though. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. When I saw this, the first thing I thought to myself is, God, I'd love to have some bigger versions of these mounted on the wall by the main broadcast machines, the OBS machine and the wirecast machine, and be able to have these analog dials so I knew how hard these systems were working. I would love to have these as props in the studio and also actual useful readouts. How long did it take you to do this? A day after getting the VU meter. <laughs> that is so cool. And then you put the code up on GitHub to do it so other people mm. can uh, play too. See, the other thing this makes me think of is like cloud stuff. Like what if you got your droplet that's running the server for your people? Or you want to see like oh my God. any random metric that you just kind of want. Is that a, a thing? Hardware Could you virtual? do that? I mean, if you can make a time series data, I don't see why not. So you could have like your freaking droplet CPU load represented with a V with a I mean you there there'd be a lot more intermediate steps of course but that is so cool Wes Man as a, as a, the sysadmin in me wants right? that for or all like the things. load average over the fleet just... like wouldn't it be great for like the different satcoms to know how the, how hard the different satcoms yeah, are working right? right now for us or what's your yeah throughput on your bandwidth what's the yeah Oh you could do oh you could oh, oh man This is Delta Flyer V2 Okay so here's what we need now, uh, let's. Uh, I need uh, Mr. Gogo and others, I need you to come to the JB1 studio, and we need to spend two days out here. I'll film the whole thing. You guys build these things, and we'll make an episode out of it. We need to do this. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I think that is so awesome. That is, gosh, that's cool. All right, well, we've got to keep moving, because this is the this longest is a episode. This big show, ever. yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to give a chance to, uh, to chat with uh, Mr. Popey, and I want to take a chance to chat with Mr. Wimpy about a recent event they went to. And it's, it's, it's not too uncommon, I think, but maybe just to recap, we could kind of set the stage here. There's these, there's these events that Canonical holds from time to time where they bring their team or different members together, and they focus on a few things, and they say, let's, let's really focus on development in this area right now. We have, a, we have a distributed team all over the world, and we're going to leverage having all of them in one space for a short period of time. There's going to be a hyper level of productivity, and we're all going to walk away with this with sort of a shared picture, a shared idea of what the next set of goals are. And a lot of things often get produced here, but they don't often get discussed. People don't realize that this is happening. Um, I don't know, guys. How am I doing so far? Have I kind of set up with the general premises of what these events are? Um, kind of. It depends. Some of them are uh, development sprints where you the developers get together and actually hack on stuff. Others are planning sprints where there's loads of meetings and discussion. And this was more of a planning than a hacking okay. sprint. Oh, cool. So Although, you can break them out. some hacking. That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, we, we have sprints all the time. Like There was one the week before we were there. There's another one this week, and there'll be another one the week after, but with different teams. So this the one that we went to last week, both myself and Martin went, was, um, was in the Netherlands, in The Hague. And um, there was... 200 and something people there 250 people there um all from was, canonical or where no there was mostly canonical people so design team desktop team uh snappy team community team um and others who i don't recall um unity 8 team mere team unity 18 mere team yes well done uh, <laughs> and like loads of other people who i've never seen before and also there were some community people there as in non-canonical people uh, there as well who were invited um, but it was mostly meetings there was a, a, a room we had set aside for hacking because the snappy team were working hard on getting a release out the door and the release candidate was <laughs> yeah. last week while they were there and the final release is this or next week hmm. and so they they were hacking but mostly it was meetings um and uh 
uh, I, I imagine that for a company that is sort of dispersed, I mean, I understand there's offices, but for a company that has a, a very dispersed workforce, it, it it seems like these would be pretty essential to getting everybody that's working on this particular thing on the same page. So even if it's not developing code, you're getting everybody making to making it feel like a team. You're buying it on the idea. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it's very it's very much that. I mean, we everyone like regularly meets up anyway online. You know, we all use Hangouts and Mumble and IRC. We use all right. the tools, Rocket Chat, you know, whatever. But um when you meet face to face, different things happen. Yeah. Like you can have a conversation in a corridor yeah. and someone will say, wouldn't it be great if this happened? And then someone will go back to their hotel room or the bar usually and sit back <laughs> on their lap yeah. and then give a demo, a lightning talk later that day <laughs> saying, we discussed this thing and look, it's now a thing. <laughs> wow. And, um, cool. That kind of stuff is quite good fun, especially when you've got like a couple of hundred um, people who are all working on the same, in the same direction. Um, you know, you can reach out to the right people who have the, you know, the knowledge about whatever it is you want to achieve. Yeah, that's that's not just productive. What's fun about that is when I've been in those situations, that's been some of the most personally satisfying work I've done is it's just it's just a lot of fun professionally to be working in a team environment that's firing on all cylinders or close to it. And so I, I kind of want to poke Wimpy's brain for a second because I, I imagine, except for the uh, snap sprint that happened uh, a little bit ago, but this is this is Wimpy's first a canonical event as a canonical employee, and I would imagine starting at a place you you've heard these names, you've talked to these people online, you've met some of them, but now all of a sudden you've you've jumped in the deep end and you're you're working with them, you're you're shaking hands. This must have gone from real to very real. I would imagine for you, is that true, Wimpy? It is. I mean, I got to meet all of my team in person who I've got to know most of them over the years of contributing that never met before, uh, including my manager. So that was obviously good. Um, But then, yes, there's lots of people in Canonical who've helped me along the way, some of whom I got to meet in Heidelberg earlier this year and some who I got to meet for the first time uh, this time round. But these sprints are pretty intense um efforts um they're absolutely exhausting for all the right reasons mm-hmm. um it's it's pretty sort of uh, breakneck speed during the day and then the exhaustion uh, falls into beer and food in the evening um and lots of fun uh, with everyone so yeah they're, they're really good fun and uh, you know i was a i think a, a stereotypical first time uh, sprint attendee in that I came back with the Ubu flu, which oh, I hear is something of a tradition. Of course, yeah. of course. One Despite. thing that's different about you being, this being your first one, which most people don't get, um, was you were thrown in as a track lead. So you had to manage ah. a track of, you know, of, of sessions and not many people have to do the that. Deep end sounds about right. That is one. the deep end. Yeah, yeah the yeah. deep end and was you did quite rather deep. Well. Yeah. That's what Oh, that's sorry, where he Wes. thrives, I think. <laughs> I just stepped on Wes's switch. <gasps> wow, Wimpy. Well, that sounds like it must. Uh, so now you're back at home other than the sickness. You must really feel like you have a job job now. I do have a job job now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, we know we know we know what's in store for the next six months now, not just, you know, within our team, but, you know, in all of the teams and how all of the teams are going to be pulling together to give you a flavor of what went on. We were all given T-shirts at the end of this event. And on the front of these T-shirts, it simply says, snap, snaps, snappy, snapped, snapcraft. <laughs> so 
if you're in any doubt <laughs> what the theme was, I think that underscores it rather clearly. I uh, I, I think that is uh, I think that's I think it's such a fascinating time right now, and and Canonical has moved very fast on the snap packages today. Uh, Flatpak got a got a big update, so this is an area that's getting a lot of attention um, and and a lot of focus right now. But Wimpy, I guess from going from the outside in. I think you see you are sitting in a position where you maybe have had had suspected that there was people in there that uh, were passionate about this stuff, or you you probably hoped there was people in there that followed current events. But you know, as as a as an external as an external viewer, when you look at the canonical group, you know a few names, but you maybe maybe you could name four or five, six people at canonical, the people the people at the top, the people that join us frequently in the communities. But you, you know, I, I wonder, Wimpy, going in now, did you get away? Did you walk away with a sense that uh, people there are, are hardcore Linux advocates? They're Linux users. What was your? What was some of the senses you walked away with, and and some of the things you suspected but were confirmed? What you can share, at least. Um, without a doubt, these were the two hundred and fifty, three hundred and three hundred most smart people I've been in. A, you know, a place with wow. ever. Um, everybody is an expert in something. Wow, that must be exciting. You'll you'll not hear the names of many of the people that were there, but they're all doing impressive things and creating great technology. Jeez. Um, and that was my impression was there are some seriously clever people <laughs> around me at the moment. Isn't that a great feeling? That must um, feel very rewarding yeah. to work with a group like yeah. that. Yeah, That's it cool. is. It's, it's uh, terrific. Um, so yeah, that was my sort of general feeling was, um, what an excellent group of people, um, canonical have got working for them. And I only got to see, um, this one, one group, uh, cross section of, of the people in canonical. And I imagine it's the same as you go across the other divisions as well. I think, you know, I universally, I have had a, a, an incredible experience when I go meet these companies um, and I, I, I talk to the people who don't come out publicly and I walk away going, holy crap, they're doing some amazing stuff that they're not even discussing. They have people that are advancing technology that they're not bragging about. Um, and exactly. a lot of these companies, uh, can, you know, canonical included, I, when I meet the people, I'm like, geez, how come you guys aren't telling this story? Why? This is, this is really something like, I think it's it's impressive and it's extremely reassuring to, to when you get down below the surface, you get below the spokespersons, you get you get below the blogs, you get below the Twitter feeds, and you look at the people that are actually contributing. That is some of the, at least if you're a tech, if you're if you're a tech head, that's some of the most inspirational stuff about this industry. So that's really cool. Uh, and and, I don't, and guys, uh, I I don't know if there is there anything that uh, we should be looking forward to that's uh, that's coming soon with snap packages or anything like that that you can tease us with. Yeah. So there there were some lightning talks at the end of the days, and one of the ones that I was quite pleased to see was um, Delta updates for Snap packages. Oh, no so, way. Uh, so, like, if you have, like, a LibreOffice Snap, it's, you know, it's it's quite chunky, but um, they're adding the ability for the, the back end to do Deltas so that oh, the next man. time you get a Snap update, it only does a, a binary Delta, you use XDIF or something. Heck and the, yes. the guy who was talking about this gave a presentation, not just about the technology underneath. I mean, he gave a quick lightning talk about, um, his name's Tommy Richards, and he, he gave a talk about um, 
the lightning talk showing uh downloading i think it was inkscape or something and then he, he enabled deltas and then showed downloading the same thing again and it was super fast i mean it was like noticeable difference between many many seconds and a couple of seconds um I and bet. then he gave a a talk about how that's implemented and the analysis that they did in order to determine what types of packages compress well. And turns out there are some that don't compress particularly well. And there are good reasons for that. And it was a great learning exercise for them to figure out, you know, what are the, what are the best algorithms to use and um, what's the best methodology to develop this kind of software. And it was, it was quite fascinating Mm. to watch. Holy smokes. You know, as somebody whose home connections on a MiFi and somebody who occasionally broadcasts from the road, I thank you so much for Delta updates. They are my favorite thing when I have a distro that supports Delta updates. It's a uh, that is oof, my bandwidth. Thanks you too. I am I am I am legitimately excited about both flat packs and and snaps. I'm I am probably personally a little more interested in snaps um, because I'm already using a bunch of them and I don't I don't have any flat packs. It seems packs like they're actually like the practicalness, the ease. Mm-hmm. easy to use level mm-hmm. faster and mm-hmm. so therefore yeah that's what I yeah and the use. apps the couple of apps that i wanted to try real quick or the ones i don't want to futz with are already available and i would love to see more absolutely and but. i could totally see I, I could see a huge place for this in like um enterprise or proprietary type deployments of things where you already have all your own dependencies and you just want a little bundle that you ship to and you're going to probably run some sort of ubuntu cloud type operating system already no kidding wes i would have used the hell out of that back right in the day. yeah you're just like, oh, everything works. It's in its wonderful little snap. Bam, on in the server. You're good to go. Jeez, that makes me want to be a sysadmin again right there. That would be so convenient um, and and straightforward. Damn. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Wes, I still have a chance. You there's, still do. There's still a chance. Perhaps I could use my fleet of DigitalOcean droplets. <gasps> One of our sponsors here on the Unplugged program. Go to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code D-O-Unplugged. That's one word, and it's lowercase. And you plug it in there on your dashboard, and you get a $10 credit. And this is why you want a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider that is dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up a badass Linux box on their crazy great infrastructure. They got great connections. They got all SSDs. They have a super sweet interface that's better than it could even – like if, if this was a desktop app that you like had to like install as a package on your desktop, I'd be like, man, this is just such a great app. It's a web app. It's all HTML5. It's a web app. It works on your phone. It works on your crappy browser. It's a web app that actually is useful, and it's easy to use, but it's also extremely powerful. If you're a total noob or you've been setting up Linux servers for like 15 years, you're going to find this to be a nice UI. Do you agree? As somebody, you oh, agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And and, and i got to tell you, when you use our promo code Unplugged and you get a $10 credit, you could actually get a lot of distance out of that because you can use hourly pricing over DigitalOcean. So if there's something you want you want to play with like open vpn or tink vpn or maybe you want to play with mb for 15 minutes i still or am using it to compile my kernels when i have a custom arch kernel yeah you just spin up a droplet super fast you run the code to compile the kernel which yeah. is you know a maker which or which which level droplet do you go with uh, I usually go to the what's the what's the two core one? That's so what I usually. go This is with. what I was gonna say because for three cents an hour, I was gonna say if because I know because a lot of everybody goes with the five dollar droplet, yes, which is a great. Deal. It's a wonderful a little web presence, your own domain, a blog, perfect. But if you're just if you you're just gonna build, power. so if you go with the two core, this is, so if you go with the West rig, it's three cents an hour. It's two gigs of RAM, a two core processor, forty gigabyte SSD. They're all SSDs and three terabytes of transfer. I don't have a reason to go with the high memory droplets yet, but man, these things. They're crazy, like 64 gigs of RAM, 224 gigabytes of RAM, mm-hmm. and they're, they're, they're a ton of money monthly. But, of course, if you need that much RAM, that's probably not a big deal. But something you know, where you're already doing some caching or maybe you just need yeah. like a big Redis yeah. that runs or Memcache. Well, and and oh, look, man. dude, if you switch it over to hourly, okay, 
you know what? I could afford eighteen cents an hour. Those are all numbers that I can. I'm yes. okay with. Those are those, even even the two dollar an hour. Like if I'm doing it for two hours, right? At most a day. At most a day, maybe. And you're like, okay, well then that's fine. Yeah, it's a pretty cool system. And then on top of all of it, they have really great tutorials. So you can just deploy a stack of apps, or you can use one of the like. Here's one, pretty relevant. How to protect your server against the Cal Linux vulnerability. Well, eh, might be good to know. Oh, that's topical. Look at that. <laughs> Look at uh, DigitalOcean over there. So here's what I want you to do. Go to DigitalOcean, set up an account, and use our promo code DOUnplugged. It'll give you a $10 credit, and then you can try any of this stuff for free. You can, ride, you can run the $5 rig for two months, or you can go run the crazy memory rig, or you can run the West rig and build your kernels and stuff like that. And do I think it. What, West, the West rig's like three cents an hour. Yeah, that's it's that's really, a, it's not that much. I should do that for the. Uh, you know what? After the show, if I remember, let's talk about how I could do that for my the because you know I got that MacBook running Arch that you set up yeah, during the show, right? And the the uh, kernel builds they're like an hour hour they're they're long. So you know what the nice thing about Arch is uh, it's pretty easy to run your own like Arch repo or it's something you can add. And uh, so then you just you build everything on a big droplet. You transfer it over to your five dollar a month droplet because all you need is it to be like an HTTP endpoint. And now you've got your own custom little Chris repo. Man, Wes, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy you a beer. Oh, DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code DO Unplugged and go build your kernels in the cloud like a boost. DigitalOcean.com. Big thanks, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the Unplugged program. Uh, all right, guys. I wanted to talk about something that I'm beginning to change my tune on. Do you re- do you remember that when I, I I did a road trip to Noah's house to like witness his home automation system, and I, I was actually really impressed. I was impressed as well. And it's even cooler than we could capture on camera. That and guy's on, got chaps. And on top of that, he's he's added on to it. And so I have kind of changed my tune a little bit on home automation. And there's this great. You're tired of Rikai leaving the oven on? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Sorry, Rika. Oh, I can't catch it. You've uh, listened to user I error. was listening to it on the way yeah. up. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. Isn't that funny? Man. And you know what? The, the I've pizza, done that too. The pizza situation <laughs> since that episode has been rough. Uh, all right. So this is really cool, though, because it's building a home automation system where you run it all on your own land, powered by Raspberry Pis. And uh, I've been experimenting with something recently. This is going to sound so stupid, but just go with me for a second. I've been experimenting with during the weekdays. Leaving my monitors on. Okay. Tell me more. Tell me more. Chris. Well, traditionally, I've got these two. Um, yeah, what's the monitor situation? Oh, man. I've got these great monitors. They're they're 27-inch Asus monitors. Okay. i got two identical monitors. One is vertical. Full HD and something else? 2K. 2K. So they're like, uh, nice, it's like what yes. is it, like 2560 uh, by 1440 yeah. or whatever? Um, but one is vertical and one's horizontal. I love it. Yeah. I love it for doing research, show prep, and or even just having like a terminal that's doing updates and oh, a telegram. The, the vertical session. monitor is, is wonderful. It's killer. Yeah. It's totally, totally killer. However, one's hooked up over HDMI, or no, one's hooked up over DVI and one's hooked up over display Let me port. Guess, display port. Oh man. Yeah. And and it is it is I've actually got a good system, but so when I when I wake the system up, the vertical monitor never fires up. That's the DisplayPort monitor. Yeah. Yep. You've been here. Oh, yeah. I've been dealing – I just got some new monitors at work. So we have six monitors now in a row in the room I'm sitting in oh. with verticals on the left and right-hand most side. So mm-hmm. it's a really nice setup. But one side is all DisplayPort. And the other side, I have one HDMI and then one DisplayPort and then a DisplayPort chained to the third monitor. Oh, really? Which the chaining is actually working wonderfully. Huh. But the power save, man. Yeah. I, yeah. It's crazy. I have a trick. 
Oh. I have a trick. So what I do is my main monitor, which I set via GNOME's so- uh, display manager, mm-hmm. because otherwise the display port would by default be the main display. Right. And in fact, when GDM starts up, the login screen is, is sideways yep. on the vertical monitor. And the horizontal monitor that sits in front of me is off. Perfect. And then I log in, and GNOME 3 starts, <laughs> and it rearranges yep. the displays. Like a champ every time. See, I'm on Unity, too, so it's not even... It's worse. Oh, okay. Um, but that's only if I've booted the system. If I'm waking the system from sleep, or if I've just turned the monitors off but left the system running, and maybe, like, let the drive spin down, when I move the mouse and, and, and hit the power button on yeah, both monitors, it up. only the DVI monitor wakes up. The DisplayPort monitor never wakes up, which is where my Telegram is and where my... Uh, my terminal session is and all that. I need that monitor. So what I have done is I've installed a GNOME extension. Oh, of course. That you, you, you just you click it and it puts your displays to sleep. So what I do is I click it. Mm-hmm. I have the horizontal monitor on. It is powered up. And the vertical monitor, the display port monitor, is off. I hit the sleep. I turn the DisplayPort monitor on. I hit the control button on the keyboard. It then sends a new wake-up command to all the displays, and the display monitor, DisplayPort that monitor, comes back, pops right back. Okay. But this is about a fifty-five-second process. Yeah, I've I've kind of timed it, and it's super frustrating. And one of the things I've done recently is during the weekdays, I've decided to just leave my monitors on, and. By God, I actually feel more. I just sit down and I immediately start. All working. you do is the lock screen and you're good, or, or what? Not even, maybe not even that. Boom! No, no, just. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's the studio. So if anybody if anybody hacks me, there's only one person it's, it's going to be, and it's going to be the beard. Boom, boom, and I don't boom, think that boom. I don't think that lock screen's going to be what no, prevents him. No. So <laughs> I don't. He's had rude since he got here. Chris. <laughs> yeah, not only that, but he knows what the password is for my account because all my studio machines have a shared password, and so I don't bother with the lock screen. I immediately sit down and start working. And I have just, I have been, Wes, I got to tell you, it's made a difference. I feel, I feel great. But now, now I got this really annoying problem. Like, I got to like turn on my lights and then there's two different places I got to go to flip a switch. And sometimes I got to turn on the fan depending on the temperature. All this other hassle I got to do before really I get to work. highlighted the little, how much the little things make a difference in your everyday work. This is actually what I'm saying. Yeah. And so I kind of been, I've kind of been turning around to the idea of automating a couple of things. Like if I could automate the monitor wake-up process so they could be turned off. If I could automate the lights turning on at the right time and the fan turning on so that when I sit down, I am ready to go. If I could have like an NFC uh, checkpoint or something at the entrance of the studio. Or when your phone joins the Wi-Fi exactly. or whatever. And if this, then that triggers Boom. all of that stuff and turns it on thinking more and more like not only would that just be nice to have but great i'll film the entire setup and it would make great content too so it kind of seems like a double double win right yeah so i was reading about this setup on how they've done it and man this is sitting pretty with me they said it was a huge product a huge project for their office and they wanted light control conference conference call room occupancy signalization individual access codes audio systems with wireless music streaming Manageable audio experiences in different rooms, like the bathroom. Honestly, with all this, I'm impressed that they were able to take the time to focus on this totally out of like that is a, this is a major accomplishment for a not business exactly yes. business request. You know, uh, I agree. And they they worked on like light controls and all that kind of stuff, and they wanted the ability to control it via web application. 
What matters is they built it all with this super badass Raspberry Pi system. They have one master Raspberry Pi, which controls all the low-level hardware. And then, and, this is called, and then they have this thing called the distribution board. I'm showing a picture of it. Oh, it is beautiful. It's so beautiful that before the show, I just sent a picture of this to Noah. I'm like, Noah, look at this. No, look at this. This is so gorgeous. This is so great. Uh, and then they have a, a second device called the Relay Driver Board, which does what you would expect. It also runs a web server on the main Pi with a web application that allows the controls. They have occupancy signalization via movement sensors, which is how Noah does it in his house. They have TV panel management with Pis connected to different TVs. And they have the Pis all, century, all cent- centrally located in this rack. So if a TV – they have an HDMI feed that goes out to the TV, but all of the Pis are in you one place. You don't have to place. go out to the TV to service it. Genius. That's smart. It's like it's like bringing like a patch panel to Raspberry Pis. Yeah. It's a, it's a patch panel of Raspberry Pis. And this is the part of home automation that's really – I'm loving because – I could do Ethernet for like HDMI. I could do uh, a- 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 HDMI over Ethernet for long runs, and yeah. I'm just I'm loving this. Uh, I, I don't know how you'd ever afford all of it, but I think it's a great system. And they talk about how they set up their audio and all of that. And I, uh, after looking at this, it's really kind of turning my head towards home automation again, but in a way that doesn't feel like it's a tied to a product or a brand. I, I think that's part of the part. Like Noah uses a lot of interesting things and i think that he's a very cool it's almost like an analog approach but it does necessarily involve a certain amount of products or boxes or and it feels hard to replicate or like a very much like well i've invested in this company's way or or at least i've invested in these things and i need this equipment to do it mm-hmm. but raspberry pis are 35 dollars, and you know ethernet is whatever by the spool so mm-hmm. plus i have ethernet run to all the rooms in the yes. studio already you probably have the infrastructure to do it you yeah. have the i mean you don't have the time but you have the linux knowledge yeah. and the wherewithal to do it yeah we need somebody to come out in the studio and work with us west to do all this kind of stuff we need some serious projects we can mm-hmm. do cuz i've got like 3 or 4 pies in the studio right now we could they're be... just sitting around right <laughs> or like onion omegas or who knows what yeah yeah, or Arduinos. We'll be getting that in a moment. Anybody in the Mamba room experimenting at all with any form of home automation, even if it's like the like the Hughes brand, like I mess around with, or anything like that? Anybody in the virtual I've log? Been, action? Yeah, go ahead. I've been actually looking into using two Raspberry Pis to solve an issue in my house, which is um, the thermostat that I have is in one location, and my um, bedroom is at the uh, other end of the house, which means my bedroom in the winter is always cold. Mm, yeah. So I was thinking about replacing my simple, stupid uh, thermostat which had, ra- with a Raspberry Pi, which I uh, already have sitting and doing nothing. Um, just connecting a relay to it and making it switch the thermostat yep. on and off. And then having a second Raspberry Pi in my... Um, uh, bedroom that talks to that other Raspberry Pi, and I can uh, tell, you know, during the night, maybe switch the thermostat to the uh, temperature reading from the other Raspberry Pi in my bedroom, and during the day, switch it to the living room. Solves that problem with, uh, I have to buy a relay and uh, That's two yeah. thermometers. Right, yeah. And you know, I've been thinking it's sort of the thing. It's funny you say this because I've been thinking about the same thing when I when I finally set up whatever storage solution and server solution I'm going to have in Lady Jupiter for being able to do on the road production. It's it's all going to be inside a dinette booth, 
which is oh right, this it, is in the rig, right? And you've seen it. they're like plush leather seats, this, comfy, and and they're made out of wood. It's like you're putting inside a, a box. It's insulated, and so I've thought about putting a Raspberry Pi or something in there with a temperature sensor that could automatically shut down when things get too hot. Because oh, yeah, sure. In in October in Washington, I'm probably not going to have an issue. But what about in August? In Arizona. And I'm not, uh, yeah. <laughs> or I'm going down to California in a few weeks. Oh, yeah. You know, it could be a little warmer. I, you park in the shade. I have no idea. Yeah, or one day, maybe that side of the rig is parked in the sunlight and it's just getting right. beat with sunlight. Right. The, the temperature is going to be all over the place. And I've thought about, well, wouldn't it be great if I had something in there that not only was charting it, so I had an idea of how things were going trend-wise, yes. but also a fail-safe that said, oh, God, this is getting bad. Shut down the cradle point. Shut down the storage array. Shut down the NUC or whatever it is. And Yellow alert. Just power down. Yeah. And then send me a message. That would be my ideal situation. So that's where I've thought about using it, too. Even in, even in the RV. You know, uh, I've thought about it. There seems like there's a lot of applications. Once you've got that kind of like, I mean, if this, then that, that sort of style response. Like there's a lot of things, you know, you can handle like um, pet feeding or care. You can handle turning on the AC, yeah. turning on a fan. Yeah, that kind of that could be that could be the route I go to. Like right? Really, you just want like a home API. Yeah, I looked <laughs> into it, and um, there. If if you don't like you know doing things by just using you know components that you buy on the wheel or whatever, um, you can buy these relay boards for Raspberry Pis, and they can handle anything uh, from switching five volt circuits to two hundred and twenty volt circuits. Oh, that so sounds really handy. Anything from thermostat to lights and power, like you could literally just shut off power to your entire. Um, you know, computer with a, that Raspberry Pi relay. Um, Ooh, just before awesome. you do that, make sure that uh, that relay board <laughs> you're buying can handle the amperage yes, yeah. and the voltage before you burn anything down. That could be bad. But are, yeah, but the, they make those, and then all you have to do is they, they will probably be like I two C. Uh, I.O. so you, can, you just plug it into your Raspberry Pi and start hacking and so if you're a software guy and not a hardware guy uh, they make it pretty easy for you it's just a few extra bucks I like it I, this is this is exciting and I could see I don't know if I'll get it to the, I don't know God, I hope I get to it this year but with winter I don't feel like it's the top of my priority list mm-hmm. but I could see early spring this being a project that I actually tackle it's kind of just interesting to think about it now because as I as I start to deploy this stuff I'll have this in the back of my mind of how I want to do this properly so I'll that, set the power yeah, up right. and the networking for it. So it's all there when I'm Get ready the to pull the trigger. Get the ready and right. then just... Yeah. And then when it comes time in the spring before it gets too hot, I'll have all the groundwork laid down. Yeah. That could be pretty... So if you've got ideas, feel free to let me know because... Please do. Yeah. If you've done this, if you tackle this particular problem... And you got a VU meter to work with it, right? Yes. You'll have hardware <laughs> dials. You can get them up on the dash. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be great. Who cares about this MPH? I'm, right. look, I'm looking at what, how my servers are doing. That's so funny. All right. Well, before we go any further, if you ever wanted to get really in-depth on a particular topic in Linux or on the back-end infrastructure on, or any of the things that people are really making money on Linux, like Ruby or Python or AWS or Azure or OpenStack, any of these kinds of things that you would like to learn more about, I would encourage you to visit our sponsor, Linux Academy. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. That's where you go to support the show and sign up for a seven-day free trial. That's new. I think that's a big deal because you can go in there and get a little taste. Get a little idea. Linux Academy has step-by-step video courses, comprehensive study guides that you can download and use offline. And the courses come with your own server. They'll spin up on demand. I think also if maybe you've been tempted by the certification life. Right. 
They have really good training on that. And I, I mention this because I have been down this path. It's been a while, but I have been down this path. And you do want training that keeps in mind your end goal. And I think they have, they have a really good path. They have like these learning paths. There are a series of courses and content planned by instructors for specific tracks, which is nice. And they have instructor mentoring available. So if you do have questions, you can actually talk to a real human and get your answer. super transparent. Yeah. You can get your question answered. You get a, you get a good grasp. So you really you have a good grasp. But you really know what you're doing. So when you go in there, you don't have that anxiety about it. It's not that you like just prepared for a test. It's you learn this because you're applying it. You yeah. understand it. You're, you yeah. know what to do. Especially if you combine it with their labs and their hands on exercises. You go in there. And you get real-world experience exactly. on, on real servers. I mean, these are servers they spin up just like you would in production, and you have the whole box yourself, you SSH in, and you're doing the job. That is great experience. And it's only the kind of thing you get when a company focuses on Linux and open source, when it's not just a thing that they do, but it's what they do. Exactly. Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there. Try them out. And also, you can take advantage of the new public profile feature. I think this is a really nice feature to let employers know how your training's gone, which I... I don't know, Wes, where you work, I, when I was in IT, training, like, there was a part of my, my yearly, not salary, but there was a part of my yearly, like, budget for me that included a little bit of training. Do you get anything yeah, like that? Yeah, there is a general, like, organizational level training budget. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I'd be curious to know if people out there uh, have tried this with Linux Academy, because to me... It's like a great way. They have great team support. Yeah, exactly. It's a super yeah. easy sell. Yeah, exactly. It's a super easy sell, plus it's something you can do where you have full control, and it's not just like fluff content. It's by people that really know Linux and care about it. They're constantly renovating the content. And with the public profiles, it's very easy at the end of the year to show what you've done. Exactly. You know, you can show your employer. You can be like, look, this is what I've done. Yep. Here's how I've improved it. Yeah. I think it's it's probably if I was still in that field, it's probably my perfect solution. And I wish something like this was around back then. It's also the perfect thing for you. Like, well, I like Linux and I don't really know what I'm doing, or you have a job that doesn't you don't get to use Linux like you'd yeah. like to. Yeah. Yeah. Linux Academy is yeah. like just the the I, golden road for you. The, for about for about a year I was using Linux Academy just to scratch itches because there were so many things I'd want to try. After I got out of doing that as a daily thing, I still had these ideas that I at Linux Academy with the labs and the training, it was a great resource for that. And the other thing that's kind of nice is like sometimes there's a topic that I don't feel like, man, I've read the story, I've talked to the people that make it, and I'm still not wrapping my head around this, and Linux Academy has courseware on it, and the thing that's really nice about that is I look at it and I go, oh, well, that's going to be three hours. Okay. I, I will spend three hours on this, and with the downloadable comprehensive study guides, the audio you can listen to, like that, I'm like, sometimes I'm podcasting this stuff. And if, if, you have, if you have a little bit of downtime when you're commuting, maybe you're a passenger or you're on public transit, I, I really think the iOS and Android apps could be a great way to learn while you're on the go, too. Oh, definitely. So check them out, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. That's how you support the show. And you can sign up for a seven-day free trial. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So last week, we were talking about the perfect keyboard. And I, I told you I was a little worried about getting obsessed with the keyboard. Yes. Um, and I, I, I walked away from the show and I was like, gosh, you know, I remember, I remember, I remember this Keyboardio project. Does this ring a bell at all to you, Keyboardio? Ooh, keyboard, you know, that does sound really familiar. Keyboardio is pretty cool. And it's, it's a group that uh, Noah and I had a chance to talk to a little while ago where they're embedding an Arduino Linux running board inside a keyboard, a solid piece of wood that they have. Ooh, look yeah. at that. Are you, yeah, are you seeing this? Wow. Yeah, this is, a really, this is a really slick device. It's a split keyboard, which is, 
ironic because I was just recently saying this original mic- the Microsoft ergonomic QWERTY yep. split keyboard is how I became a touch typist. Oh, really? And that was what took me up to my, you know, a really fast typist. And I kind of wish I still had that. This is the Model 01. They say it's the best keyboard they can make, and it's not like other keyboards. They mill the Model 01 from two blocks of solid maple. It feels good to rest your hand on the wood. Instead of shallow, uncomfortable key switches, they use glorious, tactile, mechanical key switches similar to those found in the original Apple II. They've custom sculpted, they've custom sculpted, sculpted each of the 64 individual keycaps on the Model 01 to gently guide your fingers to the right keys. It's heirloom construction, they say. I love that. I think this, here, I'll play a little bit of their video. This is pretty cool. How hard could this be? And then we built the best keyboard we possibly could. It's not what you'd expect from a keyboard, but people love it. Creating a keyboard is kind of a weird thing. It's been an obsession. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jesse Vincent. I'm co-founder and CTO of Keyboardio. I'm Kaya Decker. I'm the CEO of Keyboardio. I'm also married to Jesse. I've actually, uh, before we go any further, you know what? I've talked to both these individuals uh, in person, and I've used the original prototypes. And I can tell you they've been obsessing about this for a very long time. This is a discussion we had with them in 2015. We're here with Kaya with a Keyboardio, is that right? Keyboardio, that's us. All right, Keyboardio. So now there is a lot of talk of different keyboards. Uh, there's, you know, they have the Steel Series and they have DOS Keyboard, um, and then there's the people that just use the one that comes with their OEM ship. Right. What is it that sets Keyboardio apart? What is Keyboardio? Sure. So Keyboardio is an open hardware project, which is why we're here at OSCON. Um, And it is a comfortable ergonomic keyboard. So it's built around the shape your hands work. Um, So it's designed to be more comfortable to type on for long periods of time. Um, And it's also was designed by a programmer as the primary designer. So there's a lot of things that you type more often if you're a programmer or a sysadmin or someone else who does that type of work that we've moved into especially easy to hit places. So brackets, for example, I'm sure uh, probably take a huge uh, high priority then? Yeah, so brackets, um, instead of being off on the side to your pinky, they're just right above home row. Um, you hit. You can hold down the function key and hit UIOP, and that gets you your curly and your straight brackets. Huh. Um, WASD moves the mouse if you hold down function. HJKL um, move the arrow keys, which if you use VI or VIM might be familiar. Um, yeah, and any keys that you hit and hold down, what's called cording, so control or shift or command, we've taken off of your pinkies and put onto your thumbs, which is a lot better for you ergonomically. And um, yeah, it just it feels comfortable. It's it's a little bit faster. It's better. So uh, you said that this was designed specifically to be more ergonomic, and you used yeah. the word typewriter. Um, and so, can you give me a little bit of history about how the typewriter keyboard was designed? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of people have written like entire theses on like the the typewriter and the QWERTY layout. Maybe just the cliff um, notes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it was it was literally designed in the 19, the late 19th century, um, and 
So it was based around what you could build then. Um, so everything was laid out in rows. Touch typing was actually invented after QWERTY was was invented. And so, you know, there's different stories that I don't know if any of them have been proven around, oh, it was designed so that it was maximally inefficient to type on. Um, one of my favorite stories is that um, why shift is on your pinky um, as opposed to sort of in a more convenient place. And the reason is, is originally there'd been an uppercase typewriter and a lowercase typewriter. And they figured out, oh, you can literally shift the plate and the thing that the hammer strikes on a typewriter. Um, but they'd already done their tooling for the little hammers. And so they're like, well, we'll just put it on the side. Um, and so like one lazy engineer put shift on the side there, which is why, you know, now control and command and all these other things that didn't exist when the typewriter and the QWERTY layout was invented ended up there. Um, and so we've, you know, moved them into a place that we think is more sensible for the way that people use keyboards and, and computing today. Well, regardless of uh, regardless of if it can be proven that the, the keyboard was designed to be maximally inefficient, <laughs> as you put it, yeah. um, there's no there's no contesting the fact that if you have a hammer that rises up, that hammer takes a certain amount of time to fall back down. So yeah. if you get two of them that are crossed from each other and they hit, yeah. that'd be a bad day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would imagine that some design went into to at least, it certainly wasn't designed for optimum <laughs> typing, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so tell me some of the advantages of your keyboard versus, like, the like the programmable ones that I can buy in Best Buy or Office Max or Newegg. Sure. Um, so it's programmable with the Arduino IDE. Um, so um, we're going to have, we haven't built it yet, but have a sort of software GUI configurator. Um, and then it's also, if you want to do really crazy things, um, you can. So if you want to extend it by making it wireless or Bluetooth, um, we give you all the pins that you have in an Arduino. So you can hook up anything that works in the Arduino ecosystem, um, and it will work play nicely with it. Um, in addition, it's uh, mechanical keys, like the comfortable layout um, and so on, I think are a big benefit. But in terms of programmability, we're trying to give people as much rope as they want um, to, to play with, like actually give you firmware source as opposed to saying, well, you could remap a key here and there. It's like, it's really, truly fully programmable. So right now, these keyboards, they're being programmed with like a config file? Uh, yeah, so it's it's a couple of text files right now um, is the way it works. Um, there's, um, yeah, we're going to make it so that it's easy to do um, through a graphical interface. Um, but yeah, it's the the way it works inside is actually sort of astonishingly simple in some ways. Uh, I think that would appeal to a lot of Linux users. We're really used to just opening up a text file and changing the, the things we want. Now, where is that text file stored? Is that stored on the keyboard itself or on the computer? It's stored on the keyboard itself. And, like, one of the things, like, I used to be an Emacs user, and, like, you know, my .emacs file was full of all these, like, weird configurations and yeah. stuff. And I liked it because I could take it, you know, with me from computer to computer. And, you know, but when I moved away from using like Linux and Emacs as my, you know, primary operating system and, and text editor, like I noticed there wasn't really that for, you know, arbitrary operating system, ar arbitrary sort of key bindings and stuff. And so it was important to us to not build something where you have to install a driver just to use a keyboard, yeah. right? And don't install special software just to, you know, use the keyboard to type. So any changes you make, um, you can put it onto the keyboard and flash it there and it will go with you from, you know, whatever laptop to desktop to work computer to home computer. Now, is there software that I have to have to flash the, the new config onto the keyboard or can, is like, can, I, can I somehow plug it in and open a text file and edit it? 
Um, right now, I think you would need to install the Arduino IDE, oh, okay. um, which is free and open and easy. I think we're planning on changing that, but that's probably a question for Jesse um, in terms of the actual... He's the guy who's doing the software engineering for it. So, anything else you want to add, or if somebody who's interested in purchasing one of these fine keyboards, where they would uh, where they would go to pick one up? Sure, um, go to keyboard.io, keyboardio, or keyboardio.com. Um, we've got a ton of info on our website. If they have any questions, uh, we're re- real people answering our email um, and are happy to talk with anyone about keyboards. It's fun to nerd out about it with people. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. So the cool thing now that they've done with the model that's gone up for pre-order now is they've kind of gone back a little bit. They're doing a QWERTY style to begin with, so it's not all that crazy, but it still has the Arduino Linux computer in it that is fully programmable that you can you can reset up and replace the keycaps if you want. Uh, and uh, you know what? I have been recently reconsidering my position on keyboards, and since this has been something we have covered across multiple shows, it's got Linux running this thing, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pre-order this. I'm going to get it here in the studio. I'm going to have it as my main keyboard. And so uh, I, uh, I send an email and say, hey, guys, I want to buy one. And I think I'm going to do it with. That I'm is going to pull the trigger. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's nice. It's it's, it's going to look way better than your current setup. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, this is just a free keyboard that came with the case. Oh yeah, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's not that high end. Yeah, it's just some. Yeah, look at this. It's got. See how it says it's like by thermal take on there. <laughs> oh, you're right. That's, I would never have thought because it has like the blue backlit keys. I know, it looks I like know. a gamer keyboard. No, it's, it's that's that's. It's also got like this Borg insignia styled oh. uh, circuitry that's just lit up. Yeah, uh, where this is like a this is a proper set piece. This Craftsman is when I do videos inside the studio, this is something that'll catch the eye. But on top of that, this is a project we've literally been following for years now. And uh, I got no, I got a soft spot for keyboards that run Linux made out of wood. Don't we all? <laughs> I wonder how it compares to something like Ergodox. Yeah, or or DOS keyboard, or my Logitech G19, or yeah, yeah. I'm a little nervous. I am a little nervous. Well, actually, I mean, Ergodox is a more uh, similar comparison, right? Okay. Because Ergodox is a DIY split keyboard uh, that's designed to be more ergonomic. It has the most designs have the shifted uh, columns, just like the keyboardio. Um, uh, and they're both designed. I, I, the way I see it is, uh, keyboard is maybe um, a keyboard designed by people who are passionate about keyboards for people who just like good keyboards. Whereas Ergodox mm. is, yeah, um, I agree, a keyboard who, uh, that's designed by people who like uh, who are passionate about keyboards. For other people who are also really passionate I think, about keyboards, right. because I think keyboardio is recently. I think at at three hundred and twenty nine dollars before you pay for fancy shipping, keyboardio is for people who want something special and unique. It's it fits that it fits that category. Like I'm looking at their keyboard layout, and it's it's a little different. The the LED light controls where I would expect my tilde to be, and there's things like that that are going to be a little bit of an adjustment. So we'll see how it goes, but it feels like it's. It's um, if you are a collector of fine art, this would be sort of equivalent to that, and yes. it's much cheaper than that. Um, and I like that it's open design, it's open hardware, and it's easily reprogrammable. So there could be a potential. This is my thought. 
there could be a potential for this to be a very nice control surface for OBS. The OBS Upstream project... are crazy hotkeys keyed in there. Oh, yeah. man. OBS Upstream is working on some pretty sophisticated hotkey support. And if I end up deciding that this is a no good, this is bunk as a keyboard, and the fact that, that we can replace the keycaps and the underlying Arduino is reprogrammable, this... I feel like will be a pretty good OBS controller too. So I kind of feel like I ha- I am kind of in a nice position to test it out and see how it goes, and I'll report back. The keyboard thing has been the keyboard thing has been fun. Mosenrath, you found a G19 uh, in Canada. Where? Actually, I can't find it again. I actually I found it on Kijiji. I'm currently looking as we speak. It was in Port Hope, <laughs> Ontario. I'm hilarious. Completely serious. I found it last week. And we were sitting there talking about it because. My friends say, with some truth, that I have a hoarding problem, which has translated <laughs> to a purchasing problem of specifically Logitech keyboards. And um, I have a G15, a G11, a G105. I gave another friend of mine a G105, a G110. There might be another one around here somewhere. I don't know. Love it. But I actually did find one. And if I find it again before the end of the show or even shortly after the show, I will let you know. I'm really in the search mode for it right now. Nice. Stay tuned and find out. You know, I think that's sort of an interesting note to end on right there. And Mosenrath, don't beat up on yourself because it's not that you are a hoarder. It's that you are documenting a precious time of development in our society. In 20 years, you'll have a museum on your hands. Yeah, you are at the forefront of witnessing some of the most rapid progress in humanity. And you can't feel too bad about that. At least you can tell yourself that and try to self-rationalize with that line. You're welcome. Hey, if you'd like to join us live next week over to jblive.tv on a Tuesday, there is some calendar changes coming up in the future because I'll be traveling. So check out jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar where you can find the live times and get it converted in your local time. I'm at chrislas, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. All of that shenanigans and a post show right here next week. Pick a title, jbtitles.com. Can I just say I'm loving this uh, keyboard thing we're doing in this last episode? I know, episode. it's funny. It's really huh? fun. It's been totally organic, and it is kind of fun to talk about this because it's something we all use. And uh, I, just... I, I can't believe I found a, another keyboard that runs Linux. I got to get it. If I find it, it's been years since I found another keyboard that runs Linux. I have to have it. I like it. Cow tipping's not a bad... <laughs> Although we've already had cow in uh, Linux Action Show, but uh, jbtitles.com... Making IT steampunk, making it snappy, snap, snap, the snappy snaps. <laughs> I don't know. Are we feeling that? Are we feeling that? That's a lot of snap. Mosin, did you find it before we get out of here? Did you find it? Oh! Get it out of here. That'd be a negative. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, we have, we have a couple of different telegram threads that we're using for, like, 
conversations that are related to what might work on a user error or something like that. Sure. And so sometimes things come up in this, and we're like, man, this is a show topic. But they come up a week before we record user error. And by the time we sit down to use, use record user error, even with the Telegram thread there, we can't find it. We can't sure. remember Same it. Same thing with Slack and similar things, Yeah, right? yeah. So in Telegram, there is a to-do bot. Oh. So why not use this bot to say to-do? You'll use a to-do list manager as a shot, as topic show manager, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that pretty much translates. And so I added a bot, and I start working with it. And then I, I, my first time I work with it, I get a response. And then after that, I never could get the bot to do anything, and I have no idea if the server the bot runs is offline, if there's some sort of account issue with me. Other bots seem to be working okay. I have I have no way to troubleshoot. There's no error message returned Not to a me. Phone number to call. And it's like computers work with ones and zeros. So send me back a one or a zero. <laughs> like don't just say nothing. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't understand it. You gotta give him credit. He uh he made the jump right as the new MacBooks are about to be announced. That didn't, I know. That I was going to say. No, he's like, screw that. I'm moving forward with this. Homie don't play anymore. Is there a big uh, TLDR for why he wanted to switch platforms? The future of platforms for independent software development is probably in the hands of Linux, and many of those servers on the cloud run Ubuntu. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I think he's placing a big bet on AI and bots. AI slash bots. Yeah. Uh, to sell bots uh, to, as business contracts, to develop software... Also, I think he also figures – I mean, you'd have to listen to yesterday's Coder Radio to get the full context. But I think he also figures that um, the app ecosystem is pretty commoditized now. Sure. And uh, most good apps that are worth their salt anyways have a huge back-end infrastructure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So why not Why not, Why not? not focus as a primary on the back-end, on Linux, running on Linux mm-hmm. – and then offer iOS and Android apps as part of the entire package. Because so far, his business, business has primarily been around developing apps for iOS and Android yeah. and some Mac desktop apps. With backends when needed. Yeah. And so now he's going to pivot and do backends as the primary focus. And hey, as part of the entire package, we'll also write the web front end, the iOS front end, the Android front end. Sense. And that does seem to be like the way a lot of things are going with progressive web yeah. apps or yeah. React Native and those yeah. kinds of things. And so in his mind, he's like, well, why do I need to spend $2,800 on a MacBook Pro when I could spend $800 on a lemur and develop on the same OS that I'm going to be deploying on? Yeah. And I think the fact that Docker is just right there is a useful thing for him because Docker allows him to experiment and sort mm-hmm. of rapidly try things. Yeah. So the, I, the cost of changing things up is like nothing. And, you know, I, I've been saying this for a while. I really think there's going to be a lot of server-side developers and web developers that look at the Mac platform and say, okay, well, this new MacBook, yeah, it's got a fingerprint sensor. It's got this OLED bar on here that changes mm-hmm. from, for the few people who wrote software that support it. <laughs> But macOS itself is not going in a direction I want. It's not getting to be stable. It's it's not taking advantage of the Unix underpinnings the way I wish yeah, it, it would. it hasn't become a better Unix. No, it's not at all. It's gotten to be worse. And so I think when you're looking, well, geez, I'm just going to be creating apps for the cloud. Cloud. Anyways, why not get hardware that gets iterated faster? There's more choice. And the, 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 the desktop OS is agnostic as to which vendor I go with. Yeah. Because even in that scenario, you could eventually choose to go back to the MacBook hardware if you wanted to. Yeah, sure. Definitely. So I, I don't – I'm not I, – I think this is going to be a huge win for Linux, it's sort of like a slow boil scale. Mm-hmm. Slow boil scale. I like that. We will see. The Linux slow boil.